Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Grand Challenge lecture and features Professor Hugh Bradlow, President of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. In this lecture, Hugh Bradlow will discuss the impact of an autonomous transport system and demystify the emerging technologies that would allow the transition to such a system. Hugh will also consider the implications to the economy, including many factors such as employment and industry disruptions. His lecture, recorded on Friday the 27th of July, is entitled The 21st Century Transport Challenge. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge lecture. Um, so the first thing you'll notice is I've changed my title. I always do that because I never know two months before what I'm going to speak about. But the, the theme is going to be roughly the same. What I want to do is talk about what is the 21st century grand challenge in transport? Um, because if you look at the 20th century, our sister academy in the US, National Academy of Engineering, rated the top three engineering feats of the 20th century as electrification, the motor car, and the airplane. So when we look back on the 21st century, what's gonna, what are we going to see as the grand challenge? When we go back to the 20th 20th century, um, this, these pictures are actually quite well known, but if you look at this, um, that is Fifth Avenue, New York, Easter Day Parade, um, 1900. That is the same Easter Day Parade, 19, uh, 1913. So in 13 years, we've gone from entirely horse-drawn carriages to motor cars, um, which is an astonishingly rapid transition. And that transition, the motor car changed everything because it allowed us to build cities with suburbs. It created coordinated blocks. Not everyone's going to agree these are good things, but at the time they were revolutionary and they changed our life. It allowed us to take people to hospital in ambulances, etc. So in the 21st century, are we facing a transition as great as the motor car? And I will argue we are, and that it's going to be the most profound change we see in our lifetime even more so than the internet, because it's going to affect everyone. So um, what I want to do is I want to give three presentations today, in a sense. I want to talk about what should the vision be for the 21st century transport system. Then I, and I'm going to justify why I think that is a valid vision. Then I'm going to talk about how we can make it happen, because there's a lot of skepticism about whether this, this will actually be possible technically. And then finally, I want to talk about the human element, the regulations that we'll need to put in place, the social license to operate, and most importantly, political will and leadership. So um, I am going to uh, take questions at the end. So let's dive into this. Let's start off with a vision for the transport uh, system of the 21st century. We want it to be safe. That's clear. Um, we want it to be convenient. And I'm going to emphasize convenience because there's some interesting facts. Since Uber came around, public transport in cities with a lot of Uber has actually dropped. So you would say, why is that? Well, the answer is people want convenience. And if you give them convenience at an affordable price, they will take it over mass transits. I'm not saying you don't need mass transits. I'm just saying that convenience is not to be underrated. Obviously, we want it to be cheap, and transport today is quite expensive. And then finally, we would like it to be carbon neutral. So I'll cover those four things in this vision. But let me start off by pointing out that there are essentially four 
synergistic but disparate things happening in transport today. The cars is a sharing that's both go-get and ride-hailing like Uber. The electrification of vehicles. Um, then out of those two spins this new revolution, which is the dockless bike um, shared bike or dockless shared scooter, which, by the way, I think is going to end up as docked again because people are leaving these things all over the sidewalk and causing chaos. But nevertheless, that sort of last mile, first mile application is becoming quite strong. And then there's the topic of autonomous vehicles, which is going to be key to that original title I had is, can we eliminate human error from the road system? So um, the vision we must have for transport in the future is that we should be able to provide door-to-door -door transport using a mixed mode. In other words, any type of vehicle that actually meets the particular needs. That includes individual cars, it includes little minibuses, it includes airplanes, trains, buses, you name it. What we should be able to do is, in an Uber-like fashion, specify our destination and either when we want to leave or when we want to arrive, and then the system should take care of the rest. So this afternoon, I should have been able to say to my app, I need to be at QUT at 3.45 p.m., and it should have taken care of everything and said, you will leave your home in Glen Iris at such a time, and we'll join everything up for you. I wouldn't have had the faintest clue whether I was getting on a plane, a boat, or a train. I figured probably a, train, a plane would be involved. Instead of which, I had to go through the whole planning process, and I had to allow a two-hour buffer because I had to take into account that the plane may be delayed. And it was delayed by an hour and a half. So, you know, that's one of those inconvenient factors is you've got to build all these buffers in yourself. So that's what the world should look like. But we won't get there by just doing a better app. Um, what we've got to do is we've got to get human beings out of the system, except as passengers. So this is a mock-up, I hasten to add. Um, <laughs> although people... And those of you who've been to Hanoi will know it looks just like Hanoi on a normal day. Um, but you'll notice there, that is an intersection. No one is crashing, no one is stopping, everything is flowing. And that has a huge transformation, uh, transformative effect on the road system, because if you're not stopping, you can then start avoiding congestion, and then when you avoid congestion, things become predictable. It will require a certain amount of user behavior training. Watch that guy. Um, I don't think people are going to be willing to do that off the cuff, but as they get used to it, they will. Um, so that's where we should be aiming for. That's the vision, if you like. Why is it a good idea? Well, let's start off with safety. So our statistics in Australia is every year about 12 to 1,300 people die on our roads. The most, um, if that's not bad enough, 50,000 people approximately go to hospital as a result of a road accident injury. That's 11% of emergency room admissions in Australia. 94% of road accidents are human error. So get that very firmly fixed in your mind. Because when you think about the safety of autonomous vehicles and mechanical systems, 94% are actually human beings who are causing the problem. And if we got rid of the human beings in control of a vehicle, we would save approximately 1,000 lives a year, me being conservative here, and 45,000 hospital admissions. So a huge impact on the health system. By the way, there's an ancillary benefit. If you can actually avoid crashes, you don't need to make cars out of steel anymore. You can make them out of plastic or any light material that suits. Um, then there's the issue of 
the elderly who are growing in numbers, uh, children, um, and people with disabilities. So this enables a whole new set of people to use the transport system effectively. Then there's the issue of infrastructure. And this is important because this is actually what got me on this journey. Because if you look at Australia's population growth um, and you look at the rate of car ownership, then by 2050, we'll need to increase the road capacity by two and a half times what we have today. Um, that's the argument that the small Australian crowd used to argue for no immigration. It's a very poor argument because it's an extrapolation of the past as opposed to a prediction of the future. And when you predict the future, you start seeing the substitutional effect of digital technology on physical infrastructure. So a colleague and I did a calculation on taking that extrapolation and saying, can we, can we change it? So the first thing we did was we, uh, we introduced the impact of the, the sharing economy, car sharing. Slight downtick on the curve. We then introduced uh, the impact of telecommuting. I'm not sure where that, why that curve's got washed out, but another slight downtick. And then we introduced driverless vehicles. Now, I'll explain the funny shape of that curve as we go through the presentation. But you'll notice by 2050 that the road capacity we require is exactly the same as we have, well, we had in 2014 when I did the study. So we can actually avoid the impl implementation of physical infrastructure road building, which I describe as the world's greatest fool's errand, but I'll come to that, um, by actually using digital technology. The other thing you can do is, if you've got autonomous vehicles, you can actually direct them centrally. And so you can actually have them, and I'll come to the technology in a moment, them all reporting where they are and using a centralized control system, distributing the traffic load across the entire system so that you actually are then optimizing the overall system as opposed to individual roads. Again, saving of infrastructure. There are other economic benefits. Um, astonishingly, in Australia, a quarter of a trillion dollars, trillion that is, not billion, trillion dollars is tied up, of private capital is tied up in vehicle ownership. Um, so we could free up, uh, by the way, I, I should add, I, I, lots of people have modeled the impact of autonomous vehicles, and the International Transport Forum did a very detailed model of what a normal city would look like if you introduced this technology. They did Lisbon, and they found that if you had that mobility as a service with a lot of shared vehicles, I'll come to that, and public transport, you could actually re reduce today's road capacity by two-thirds. But they also found that you would need one-tenth of the number of cars on the road. They would drive a little further, about 20 to 30% more, but you'd only need one-tenth of the cars. So if we got rid of 90% of the cars, we'd free up $200 billion of capital, which we could use for things like hospitals and other useful things, um, although we would need fewer of those. And then the other thing is if you get rid of the congestion, um, there are various estimates of the productivity gains, but I picked this one because it seems reasonably sound, which is you would get a $6.5 billion per year improvement to the economy through productivity gains. Okay, so that's the autonomous vehicle benefits side. Let me just quickly deal with electrical, electric vehicles. Um, there are a whole lot of advantages to electric vehicles. It's cheaper to run them. You get lower fuel costs, lower maintenance. Um, you do get lower CO2 emissions, but depends where you live. So in Victoria, um, it's not, because we burn brown coal. In Tasmania, where they have hydrogen power, you do actually get those types of improvements in CO2 emissions. 
But ultimately, we will move to a renewable energy system, and therefore, you'll see those CO2 emissions decline. So what is impeding the adoption of uh, electric vehicles? Well, the first thing was people have uh, range anxiety. And you'll notice that this curve over the last seven years, the range has improved the peak range from 94 to 335. That's miles, it's American figures, roughly 500 kilometers. So we're starting to see the range differential disappear. The other big issue with electric vehicles has been the cost of the batteries. And those, um, Thanks to Elon Musk, who someone described to me a moment ago as an idiot, which I agree with. Um, but thanks to him, um, we're starting to see the cost uh, of the battery decline. And you can see that was 2016. Somewhere in the first half of the next decade, the overall cost of the electric vehicle will be less than a petrol vehicle or a diesel vehicle because of the battery cost decline. At the moment, it's about 60% of the cost of the vehicle. So that will have a transformative effect. However, there is still a problem. So I'll start with the cons here. Um, the charging time. I don't care what Elon Musk says. If I'm driving from Melbourne to Brisbane, I'm damned if I'm planning my route about around where I can charge up my battery for an hour and a half. So I think charging time is still a major issue. People are coming up with interesting solutions, like replaceable batteries or even replaceable electrolyte in the batteries. But at the moment, charging time is a big issue. So people have started looking at hydrogen, which has range that equates to a normal car, a petrol car. Um, it's uh, emissionless, or it emits water vapor, but that's not harmful. And, um, it, but it has two major cons. The one is it's unproven, but that's minor con, actually. But the major con is you've got to put in a whole new infrastructure. So I put charging infrastructure. I meant re refilling infrastructure. We don't have that yet. And that's what's holding it back. You've got to change over all the petrol stations to be hydrogen filling stations. OK, so um, poll number one, for those of you on Slido, it's uh, Simple question, when do you think you will get an electric vehicle? Uh, by electric, I mean fully electric, not a hybrid, um, uh, not a plug-in hybrid, not any hybrid. Fully electric, either hydrogen or battery. When do you think you'll own one? You already own one, five years, 10 years, or I don't think I'll ever own one. So what I want to do when I'm not pressing the button is talk about now how we can get to this human-free control system. And the trigger is emerging technology. And this is kind of how I got interested in the problem, because that's the area that I specialized in during my working life, which was emerging technology. And the first thing that's happened <coughs> is what's called the Internet of Things. Now, um, the reason why we have this revolution going on in the Internet of Things is thanks to the, um, the mobile cellular phone industry, effectively. Because what happened is mobile phones created the need for wireless networks, so we have fairly extensive wireless network coverage, and we're also created smartphones, and smartphones have sensors in them, lots of sensors, actually. They have imaging sensors, they have acoustic sensors, they have location sensors, they have movement sensors. And when you're producing these things in the billions, the cost just plummets. So what happened is you get a whole revolution of new sensors. We're seeing a Cambrian explosion of sensors where the sensor costs are <coughs> excuse me, dropping and they are communicating. So you've got all these sensors that communicate. And then on top of that, you put them through the networks and you, thanks to the internet giants, Google and Facebook, we've got these 
huge cloud data centers with the software that enables so-called big data. So you can now collect all the data coming out of those sensors, store it at scale, and manipulate it at scale. Um, and that leads to new forms of analytics. Um, and so the most important of these new forms is machine learning. Um, why? Uh, because machine learning, by the way, mistakenly called artificial intelligence. It's a particular type of artificial intelligence. But machine learning <clears throat> allows you to derive relationships between variables where the mathematical causality is very hard to discover. So if you've got a, a variable space with huge number of variables, and you want to be able to derive a relationship from it, Machine learning allows you to do pattern recognition. That's all it is. And it's extremely good at certain patterns, speech and machine vision being the most important. And of the two, speech is getting all the attention at the moment because you can literally talk to your house and 30% of Americans already own a smart speaker that's doing that. But machine vision is probably the most profound change we will see in technology over the next 10 years because it's having a dramatic input. And that's the key to driverless vehicles. Um, one of the keys. The other thing you've got to be able to do is you've got to be able to compute all this data. So you need new forms of computing because our current computing environment doesn't scale from a power perspective. You can do the CPU cycles, but you can't get the power down. Just to put it in context, um, a human brain runs on uh, about 20 watts of energy. That's kind of two LED light bulbs. Um, uh, the world's biggest computer, it used to be Taihu Light, I forget, I don't know the numbers for the new American one, but the world's biggest computer is uh, about 100 petaflops of uh, CPU cycles, but it runs on something like 15 megawatts, so you need almost a whole power station just to run one computer. Um, and if you do the math on that, if I plug my brain into the electrical grid and powered it from the electrical grid, it would cost 30 cents a day. This thing costs $120,000 a day. So you can see the, the difference between that. Now, is that as big as a human brain in terms of CPU cycles? People used to think so. They used to think the brain was about 40 petaflops. But in fact, some new research has shown that it's more like four exaflops. So we've still got a ways to go even to match the brain CPU cycle. So we can't scale the technology yet to do the computing, but we're getting there. And then there are a whole branch of computing, or three branches of computing that are designed to scale up from a power perspective. The most interesting of which is quantum computing, and that's a topic for another day, um, because it's too hard to explain. So let's now talk about autonomy. Um, so the Society of Automotive Engineers, the SAE as they're called, um, came up with five levels of autonomy. So level zero is no autonomy. That's just you sitting and driving your car and pressing the brakes and stuff. Level one is, and, uh, is things like cruise control, um, not um, speed adjusted, but just ordinary cruise control. Level two and three are various forms of driver assist. Um, they driver assist technologies. I actually think level three should be banned um, because uh, it drivers mistake it. So Tesla brilliantly called their level three system autopilot. Um, and you probably didn't miss the fact that someone did kill themselves on autopilot. And the way they did it was they took it as being an autopilot. So they sat and the guy sat and watched a video. And um, a truck turned in front of him. The 
imaging systems didn't pick it up for various reasons, and he just cruised straight through under that truck and decapitated himself. Now, rather unfortunate for him, but it's actually a mis a misleading to think of that as automation. It's about a driver assist. When we get to level four, then we're switching over to where it's no longer driver assist, but the vehicle is actually taking control. But only in confined circumstances, say a particular lane on the freeway, or say a city center or something like that. And level five is when we want to be able to have the vehicle take control completely, the human being isn't allowed to touch the steering wheel, and in fact, you don't even have a steering wheel in the car. And to be able to do that, you've got to be able to do it in every circumstance that you can conceive, out in the bush, in the middle of the city, in rain, in hail, in snow. Um, so the example I always give is, I was in South Africa a few years ago, and I was driving on a country road in the middle of nowhere, and I got hit by a hailstorm, and it was so bad I literally could not see the end of the bonnet of the car. I knew there was a ditch on my side because I'd seen it when I could still have visibility, so I couldn't pull over. It's Africa, so if you stop in the middle of the road, the guy behind you isn't going to stop, so he's going to plow into you. And you just, you can't see where you're going, so you just hope and pray and you drive. It's probably the scariest two minutes of my life. Now, that's the situation you've got to be able to deal with. No infrastructure, um, no visibility. Can, can you do that? That's what level five is about. And the answer is, yes, you almost certainly can. Now, there are plenty of academics, I hate to add. Academics love to admire problems. I'm not sure they like to solve them. Um, but they love to admire the problem. And um, the, the, there are plenty of them who will say, you can't do this. Um, but that's because they're looking at a very narrow field of their own expertise. So you need to create a synthesis of four different sets of technologies. The first is, Artificial intelligence, as it's called mistakenly, but mainly machine vision and certain other algorithms you need to actually do the control of the car. I've shown a neural network there because that's kind of the most common form of machine learning. Then the second thing you need to do is give the, the car eyes. Uh, you have to do machine vision. Um, situational awareness technologies, as they call them. Now, the thing with situational awareness technologies is there are many different types of imaging technologies. So if you look at my situation in South Africa, the cameras didn't work, or wouldn't have, I didn't have any, because I, I can't see, it can't see. But radars might have worked, because you may have been able to get some penetration through the rain with a radar. Then there are things like LIDARs. Now, Elon Musk didn't, doesn't believe in LIDARs. I suspect that was because when he started the whole autopilot thing, a LIDAR cost $80,000, which is more than the cost of the car, so he didn't want to burden the car with it. Um, but um, a LIDAR is basically a laser-based radar, and they can give you much more accurate positioning and movement, and they would have stopped that car from crashing into the truck. By the way, the one thing I do keep pointing out with, for, to people is that car that crashed in the truck, first of all, Tesla on autopilot had driven 130,000 kilometers without an accident. Um, the average fatality in the States is 90,000 kilometers um, without an accident. So it's already doing better than a human being. But the most important thing is they reprogrammed their autopilot system to get rid of that error. You can reprogram a machine. You can't reprogram human beings because people wouldn't drive drunk then, um, but they do, and they will continue to do it. So um, you can re correct errors of machines. You can't in humans. 
Um, and then there are other forms of technology you can try and apply, like terahertz rays and acoustics and things like that. Um, but the most important thing is you've got to do sensor fusion, and that's quite a challenge. You've got to be able to take all these technologies, bring them together, and make them work in a unified fashion. Still ways to go with that, but huge progress being made and billions of dollars of investment going into it. And by the way, the cost of the technologies is plummeting. So these are the new forms of LIDARs that are appearing. They're going down from $80,000 to a couple of thousand dollars to a few hundred dollars down to a few tens of dollars. And so we'll see the cost of those things over the next five years come to the point where they consume items, pretty much. Um, the third thing you need, and this is something we should be doing now, not waiting for autonomous vehicles, is you need what's called V2X communications, vehicle to anything communications. And that is transformative because you can have the vehicles starting to talk to each other. So this car, the truck can say to this car, there's a bus in front of you. If you take my situation in South Africa, I could have talked to the cars behind me and say, don't come crashing into me because I'm in front of you, so they'd be aware. And that will make a huge difference to these technologies because you're no longer totally reliant on the situational awareness. You've got the communications as well. Um, so um, we have to build a communication system that will do the following. The first thing is it needs to be able to do vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle directly without infrastructure, so-called infrastructureless mode. No mobile phone towers. If you're the back of Burke, it still works because it's talking directly to the vehicles around it. But when you're in Brisbane, it's talking via the network to other vehicles in the vicinity, so it's talking to a lot of vehicles. It's also talking to the road through roadside units, saying, you know, we've got a roadworks in this position, so you've got to, we'll reroute you around that. And it will talk to cyclists and pedestrians. Um, uh, so that uh, they will, probably more likely the cyclists and pedestrians will talk to the vehicles to say, I'm here, don't forget about me. Um, so uh, that's the, the communications infrastructure we're looking for. Now, if you're going to build that infrastructure, you need to meet certain requirements. And the first thing is you do want coverage. Even though they have an infrastructure in this mode, you still want coverage. By the way, I can't help putting this up. That's Telstra's coverage map. It's twice as big as anyone else's. So um, that is a definite plus. But you need a new form of capacity. Today, we're used to capacity, which is being able to watch Netflix videos without stuttering. We're also going to need the capacity to be able to do what's called signaling, which is you've got to be able to up the number of uh, devices on the network. And when you have devices on the network, they're chatting away, which we in the industry call signaling. And effectively, that's that vehicle to X communications. They're chatting away. That's signaling between vehicles. You want to be able to put in fast-moving objects, perhaps not jet planes on our roads, but still fast-moving. Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You want to be able to get low latency, in other words, low delay. I've shown a picture of a robotic surgery there, but the same thing applies to vehicles. And then this is what's called quality of service. You want to be able to guarantee bandwidth in certain circumstances so that some kid playing Fortnite in the area doesn't flatten the network and cause crashes all over the place. So that's what you've got to build in terms of a network. So today we have some vehicle-to-X communication systems. It's called DSRC. For those of you who are experts in that, let me predict your demise. Um, because the, um, this technology will be overrun by 5G, which is coming along at like a steam train. And really, you know, people of the press has labeled 5G as being 
bigger bandwidth and more high-definition videos and things. It's not that at all. It's really about these low-latency, high-capacity communications to be able to cater for millions of cars on the road being able to do that sort of um, thing. Um, so the big question for the road authorities is, do they want to have a dedicated network or purchase this from operators, and they're going to have to work that out for themselves? And then there's one other piece of technology we need, which is centimeter map accuracy maps. You want to be able to have the accuracy of the maps so that the vehicle knows that it's actually in the lane. So you really need to be down to sub 10 centimeter accuracy. You probably are going to need what's called differential GPS um, to do that. But there are other new GPS systems which are at about 30 centimeter accuracy, which would have worked in my situation out in the rural South Africa. But there's another way in which you can get maps, which is called crowdsourced edge mapping. This is pretty cool. You take all your sensors. They recognize objects on the road. They broadcast that up to the central facility, and it says, yep, that's a tree, that's a bridge, no, that's a person, um, et cetera. So that's all, the two are going to combine synergistically. Okay, so let me get, uh, go to the but what about. Um, so the first but what about, by the way, there is the one but what about which I haven't covered is people say, but I like driving. Yeah, I like riding a horse. I'm not going to do it on the gateway bridge. It's a stupid argument. Um, so uh, I'll dismiss that. Um, but the, the, after, the, the question is, what about the existing fleet? Average age of a car in Australia is 10 years. Probably takes 20 to 30 years to turn over the entire car fleet. What are we going to do with all the cars on the road? It's all very well for the new one. Well, the answer is there are aftermarket kits that you can put on these cars. They'll probably cost about $1,000. They're tiny compared to the cost of the car. And um, they will work with any car with electronic stability control and electronic steering, which is most of the fleet on the road today. By the time we start seeing this technology mature, it means that we could retrofit the entire fleet if we had the will to do it. Then there's the other things that someone raised this with me and said, on the Monash Freeway in Melbourne, there are 40,000 lane changes, and our car, uh, auto, autonomous system will never be able to do that. But, in fact, they've tested uh, autonomous vehicles against professional, semi-professional racing drivers and beaten them. And they say by 2035, they'll be able to beat a Formula One driver. Now, the reason they pay a Formula One driver so much money is because to actually get one second off the time of a lap costs them hundreds of millions of dollars of new technology. If the machine can do it better, then you'll see the end of the Formula One drivers, I think. Um, and then there's the most important issue, which is security and privacy, but mainly security. Cars do get hacked today. They, a lot of cars are online. They've been hacked. There have been some epic hacks where people have taken over the vehicle, turned the brakes off, changed the steering, etc. However, there are ways of dealing with it. I won't go through the whole thing about how you deal with IoT security, but I'll tell you a story about a company called Trillium who went to a, a, the world's major hacker conference called DEFCON, um, and they said to everyone, here's a car, hack it, and you can own it. Literally, we'll give it to you. And so all the world's best hackers are sitting in the room. None of them actually were able to hack the car. So it just is a proof of doability that you can secure these devices. Okay, so let me turn to the human element for the last five minutes. Um, the first thing we want to worry about is what regulations are we going to need to make this happen. Um, 
and these are being worked on by road authorities. And by the way, I uh, must give full kudos to TMR in Brisbane. They are probably the most pro proactive road authority in Australia in terms of these things. So um, you do, oops, I went past something. You do need to set vehicle standards. That's been worked on by the, the group who does the Australian vehicle standards. Um, you need to determine things. Um, first of all, you need to use international standards. Secondly, you do need to work out what is the minimum functionality you can accept. So, for example, Elon Musk doesn't believe in LIDARs. Is that acceptable to us? I would almost say certainly not. We should specify that a car must have LIDARs and pointing in this direction with this range, this accuracy. Um, we need to uh, define how we're going to do the roadworthy tests on these vehicles, and we also need to define the standards we expect from cybersecurity. Then we need to define how we're actually going to use the vehicles. So, one of the things, um, Alan Finkel is chief scientist of Australia, when I first started talking about this a few years ago, he said to me, oh, this will never work, because rich people, like him in other words, will um, get their driverless vehicle to drop them off and drive around the block continuously till they're ready to be picked up and then pick them up. Simple answer, create a regulation which says the vehicle can't be driverless, uh, can't be empty for longer than a certain period of time. You can monitor all these things. Um, the second thing is we can encourage the use of shared vehicles by just raising the road fees like they do in Singapore. So you want to own a car in Singapore, it's damn expensive. That's why everyone uses taxis. So they're those sorts of regulations you've got to put in place. Second set of regulations which is critical is data ownership. Now, there are two things here. The first thing is the cars must give data in real time to the central road authority so that they can do things like optimize the system. Um, and so they must define what data the car's got to spew out through the network continuously. At least they've got to, the car must report its location, speed, and its origin destination pair. Um, but there's another set of data which is too much to actually broadcast through the network because a car would, in its raw state, produce about four terabytes of data an hour. But you're going to need that data. If there is a crash, you're going to need it for forensic analysis. So the cars are going to need a black box with a big disk on it to store all that data, and that's important. Then you've got to define all the standards about what the data should look like. That's just plumbing, so don't worry about that. Then you've got to worry about we're going to go through a long period where we've got human drivers and automated drivers. And so we've got to actually work out what's the introduction strategy. Now, I modeled in that model an introduction strategy which said when there were enough driverless vehicles on the road, we'd reserve a lane on the freeway for them. And that's when that curve ticked down. Then the number of automated vehicles keeps climbing. Then you allocate a second lane. And eventually, you allocate the whole road to the driverless vehicles. The other thing you could do is, this is the London congestion zone, but what you could do there is you could actually say, instead of being able to drive in there, if you want to take a vehicle in there, it has to be a level four driverless vehicle. Level four, because it's a constrained set of circumstances, um, and therefore you can do all that optimization that I talked about as an introductory strategy, and avoid um, the continuous congestion because you've got the, that extra advantage. And there will be other solutions. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is the social license to operate. Um, people aren't going to like this, especially the people who lose their jobs. And there will be a lot of those. 28% um, of jobs in Australia involve driving. 
Um, not all those jobs will be lost, but they will certainly be influenced. But there are also a couple of dozen industries, some of which are quite obscure, which will be disrupted, some in a positive way, some in a negative way. But, you know, obviously, I'll, co I'll cover the road building and parking garages in a moment. But there are things like traffic enforcement. Um, I forget, the state of Victoria gets something like $600 million a year from speeding fines. Well, they can kiss that goodbye. So, um, you know, what's that mean? Am I going to pay more rates? Um, their um, real estate will change because people make different life choices depending on if you don't have to commute in traffic for two hours a day, why, why shouldn't I live two hours out of town? Because I'll be able to use those two hours productively each way. Um, Childcare, old age facilities, um, if you're going to have an old age facility and you can just automatic, automatically take people to a hospital or an age, um, wherever they need to go with a vehicle, then it changes the way in which you might build those. Um, home improvement, this is, by the way, an interesting one, where they're predicting that when you no longer own a car, what are you going to do with your garage? Well, you're going to turn it into a granny flat or, or something. So, you know, home improvement's going to take off because everyone's going to be remodeling their garages. So, I, I wanted to cover the first two in a little more depth, which is road building and, and parking spaces. So, um, as you saw from that curve of mine, we'll, we still need to build roads for a little while. But when I look at the way Vic Roads build the Tullamarine Freeway, by the time they finished that damn road, I think Rome wasn't built in a day, but it was sure as hell built faster than the Tullamarine Freeway. Um, by the time they finished that road, it'll be, first of all, completely busy again, and secondly, we may not need it at all because we may have hit that peak roads point and we're on the way down. That's a serious problem because people need to predict when's peak roads and how do we actually determine when we should stop building roads. There's another slightly more insidious point in case it's escaped anyone's attention. Building, construction in our economy is an enormously important part of our economy at the moment, especially with the decline of the mining boom. And road building is the biggest part of building at the moment, and we're already seeing a decline in housing building. Um, so road building is a big issue for us, and therefore we do need to worry about when we stop building roads. Um, the timing of peak roads, by the way, is determined by the cities, with two caveats. Obviously, the technology is going to work, but I'm predicting it will. And the other thing which is not so obvious is that there's a social license to operate. The same thing applies to parking. We will hit a point at which there's peak parking. So if you look at the Lisbon model, they predicted if, that there would be 200, parking, uh, 200 football fields worth of parking space freed up in the city because of the, the whole autonomous system. So people will need to, town planners need to be thinking about if we're going to specify that people must have parking, which they do when they're densifying an urban area, what does that parking look like, and will it be repurposable in the future? So I live in an area of Melbourne where they're taking down quarter-acre blocks and putting up 24 units on the same space. I don't know how they do it. But one of the things they have to do with town planning regulations is they have to build an underground parking space. In 20 years' time, when you no longer have a car and you don't need it, it's a particularly useless piece of space because no one wants to have anything useful in an underground parking space. I guess storage facilities will become really cheap at that point. Um, so, uh, my second poll. Um, does anyone here think that their business will be disrupted or not by uh, this process? Um, then the thing I wanted to end up on is political will. 
Um, and the, um, the fact is that if we're going to make this happen, if we're going to play out this vision, there are four things that governments are going to have to do. The first is they're going to have to charge per kilometer on the roads. Petrol excise tax is going to be dead once we've gone electric, so per kilometer charging is dead easy. We should be introducing it now. We should be forcing everyone to do it. You can get a $20 dongle, you plug it into the OBD port of your car, and it will take care of that dead simple, and it will actually just ensure that that concern goes away. The second thing is we should be discouraging individual car ownership, um, and that we can do through registration fees. It won't be popular, but we can do it. Um, then we've got to do those introductory strategies that I talked about. And then finally, at some point, we've got to say, this is the end of human drivers. We've got to set a date, and by, just as we did with catalytic converters, you've got to say, by such and such a date, no human being will control a vehicle on a public road. And that will then take us to the end of the vision. So, my last slide I poll is, do you think our politicians have the guts to do this? So, in conclusion, lots of opportunity, huge uh, change if it comes about. It'll have an absolutely transformative effect on all our lives. But, and the technology will be possible, but do we have the political will? And with that, I will switch over to questions. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.